Welcome to the Winning with Shopify podcast. This is the podcast that will teach you to take your Shopify store and turn it into a business growing sales machine. It has the latest marketing, email, sales, SEO, and social media advice, and also have strategies and tips from the experts without fluff. Your host is Nick Truman. He's a Shopify expert and the CEO of JustAskParker.com, a global specialist marketing agency for Shopify owners. Nick has over 13 years experience in digital marketing, from PPC and SEO through to digital transformation of businesses. He's helped hundreds of brands from startup Shopify stores through to international enterprises that operate in hundreds of countries. Nick will be sharing his knowledge and in interviewing the experts to help you and your journey to success. This episode is sponsored by Bright Pearl. Discover more and sign up now at brightpearl.com forward slash life is short. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. Now, here's your host, Nick Truman. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Winning with Shopify podcast. For anyone who hasn't tuned in before, my name's Nick. I've been posting the podcast since June 2020 now. And it's been an amazing journey of different things going on, different series. I highly recommend checking out a few series that we just finished. One that was on how to run the business side of an e-commerce store. So things like finance, legal, time management. And most importantly, the final episode was all about how to exit a business. Ideally, how to sell your e-commerce store and walk away with a nice big lump sum of money. Today, we've got a one-off special where we're going to be talking about something very, very interesting, and it's going to be full of learnings for you guys to tune in and make lots and lots of notes, etc. Today, we've got two very special guests with us. One of them is Bright Pearl, who we've had on the show many, many times before, and the other is Trustpilot, who we've had on the show a few times before. We're going to be having a little discussion between the three of us about what's been going on in the e-commerce world over the last few months, and especially over the last 18 months now with COVID and coronavirus hitting across the globe, causing people to have to shop online more, what some of the changes and things have come out of that, which is really, really important. Just before I let my guests introduce themselves, if you haven't hit the subscribe button already, please do. It helps support the show. Leave us a review if you can as well, and make sure you check out our Facebook group. We're starting to do more in there. There's been loads of questions popping in in there recently. I'm quite active in there as well. So feel free to go and join it. It's just called Winning with Shopify on Facebook. And it asks you a couple of questions and then you're straight into the group. So please do go and check that out. Without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Mark from Bright Pearl. Mark, welcome to the show. Tell us a bit about yourself. Hi, Nick. Thanks for having me. So I'm Mark Hook. I'm Global PR and Comms Manager at Bright Pearl. I actually have quite a, a wide remit, but the biggest hats I guess I, I wear relate to brand strategy, corporate comms, um, and, and PR and campaigns as well. So yeah, quite a, quite a wide berth. Excellent. Thanks so much, Mark. And then over to you as well, Tom from Trustpilot. Welcome to the show and tell us a bit about yourself. Thanks for having me as well. Yeah, so my name's Tom Stevens. I'm one of the senior customer success managers at the online review platform Trustpilot. I guess in a nutshell, I help businesses improve their online reputation and then showcase that reputation strategically probably seen ads and websites with those green stars on it. So that is what I help businesses do, really. Amazing. Well, thanks so much for both of you for, for, for joining in the podcast today and, and being on the show. It's great to have you with us. Just before we dive into our first question on this, 
Just a quick little signpost to the end of this podcast. Mark's going to be telling us about an amazing competition where you guys can enter your store in regards to how quickly your store is growing and how successful it is at the moment. Brightpole are going to be posting some sort of league table and there's a bit of a competition around it as well. But as I say, more to be shared by Mark at the end. But just before we dive into uh, some of the nuts and bolts, Mark, I'm going to ask you to set the scene. So the first thing I think we should talk about today is what are some of the major trends that you've seen in the e-commerce world, both over the last few months and also over the last few years? Well, I think there's no real surprise that what we've seen is a major increase in online demand. So and just to kind of give some context, the on average, the retailers that use BrightPro are seeing somewhere between 300 to 600% uplift year on year in terms of the amount of wow. orders they're getting. I know, right? So that's like, it's wild, but that's all great news um, if you can manage that that scale and you can actually manage that demand so that's where the kind of the rubber hits the road we're, we're seeing retailers kind of struggling a little bit with the the actual nuts and bolts of getting orders out the door right quickly and on time and accurately so with that switch becomes right we need to start managing our order flow better we need to start being able to get orders actually out the door and into our customers hands we as a result of that we're seeing a lot more increasing use of of automation so workflow automation specifically so looking to automate the aspects of your operations behind the buy button whether that's order management through to fulfillment and shipping and that's really helping retailers to to kind of deal with that that uplift uh, and that increasing demand so that that's kind of one area the, the other tailwind, I guess, we're seeing in e-commerce is a huge abundance of new selling channels, which is really exciting. I think we've had a, an architecture maybe in, in e-commerce for many years, which is kind of the setup is an e-commerce store, typically Shopify, right? Maybe you sell on, on Amazon and, and some other marketplaces. Typically, it kind of ends there. Maybe you've, you've started to dip your toe into to social selling, but what we're starting to see is retailers now beginning to add an abundance of new selling channels as they look to start going, right, where are our customer bases buying? Are the 18 to 24 year olds going to be purely buying on, on platforms like Instagram, TikTok, whatever? And that that's really interesting. But as those selling channels start to be added, that multi-channel selling is is tricky. It adds a lot of system complexity. And I think that's something that retailers are going to need to address over the next couple of months and years. Wow. I mean, certainly those statistics you mentioned, 300 to 600% increase. I mean, that's, that's every sale they had per day previously. That's three to six sales per day now. Yes. I mean, that is absolutely astronomical in terms of growth. I mean, unprecedented to, to some capacities. What, what are some of those new channels then? You mentioned that retailers are looking at different channels to sell through. Yeah. What, what kind of platforms are we looking at? Or is it physical stores? Or what does that look like for the average Brightpole customer at the moment? So in terms of the average Brightpole customer, it's looking at uh, primarily more social selling channels. That That's where we're seeing that retailers are starting to So sort of Facebook, it. Instagram, that kind of thing. Yeah. There, there's almost a, a need now. And some really savvy retailers have, have told us this, like they're, they're kind of ahead of the game where they're looking to segment their audience by selling channel and i think that's a switch right i don't think we we really do that in e-commerce at, at the moment but that is starting to change and whether that is adding 
you know, YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, Fortnite, <laughs> you know, live selling channel, <laughs> that, that type of stuff. Yeah. But, but we joke, but I was speaking to one customer that was really looking into how do we start to like sell through these type of platforms? Because there was a, I think there was like a, there was a concert on, on Fortnite that attracted like 20 million, like 18 to 24 year olds. And, and he's like, ridiculous. That's amazing. Like, how, how do we monetize that? I'd rather go there than a festival. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so it's going to be really interesting over the next couple of years to see that shift. Sure, sure. And for anybody where the S word segmentation is new, what we always mean in, in this industry about, about segmentation is you, you literally go into your CRM system, which might be something like Bright Pearl or Shopify. You may be using something like HubSpot or something completely different. But yeah, you, you basically segment your customers to go, right, there's, we're going to make what are called lists. So we'll have a list of people that found us through Facebook, another list that found us through Google Shopping, etc. And actually then the email marketing, the remarketing, uh, and actually the products we're going to push in front of them might be quite different. And certainly the communication methods are going to be quite different. So very, very tactical. Um, and I love the fact it uses your data to drive change, which in my experience is the only way of doing things in e-commerce. But coming across to you then, Tom, so obviously Trustpilot, I mean, what a range of industries you work across. What are some of the biggest areas of growth that you've seen? Is it just in e-commerce or are there some surprising ones in there as well? Yeah, yeah. I mean... <laughs> I guess in my role, I've kind of seen it in, in two areas, really. You kind of get your typical small businesses, previously bricks and mortar only stores who March last year, suddenly they weren't able to make any money. They weren't able to trade. So we saw a lot of small businesses who in the space of two, three weeks even open up web stores, whether that's on Shopify or, or whatever. So you, you're kind of seeing, actually our, our VP tells a good story about this, about how his local butcher was forced to shut. And, and within three or four weeks, he'd, he'd opened up a, a Shopify web store. Oh, brilliant. Um, <laughs> and, and, and even now, he's he's still got that open. So even now, it's still able to trade through his, his shop again, but has still kept that web store open. So that's kind of one mm. area. And, and then I guess as well, we were seeing some of those big retailers who, again, previously, maybe the split was kind of 20% online, 80% in-store. And, and that kind of has flipped on its head to a certain extent. So I think you're seeing growth at both ends which which is really interesting in terms of specific industries i don't know what, what do you reckon what would you guys say in the past 12 months what would you what would you guys say were the, were the sectors the categories on Trustpilot that had the most reviews i mean i my, my guess is going to be obviously anything e-commerce related which is lots and lots of industries i think I, I can imagine anybody with an e-commerce store butcher being a good example i had a guy on the podcast back in the beginning of january i think it was Second week of January, had him on from Deliciously Guilt Free. They basically bought a local rundown cafe that had gone into liquidation or whatever. They bought the building. They now use that as their kitchen to bake cakes to send out. And they've opened a community cafe when they're allowed. But even if we're in lockdown, they're still selling the same amount of stuff online, which is amazing. So I think e-commerce e is a definite one. I, I reckon there's probably a few surprising ones. I think there's probably something in like estate agents, property, real estate, given how many people have been moving because the stamp duty changes, etc. I imagine travel's dropped off a cliff. Apart from UK travel, I imagine some small cottage rental companies and stuff. I imagine those guys are doing pretty well. Certainly when they're allowed to, it's probably uh, waves rather than feast and famine rather than <laughs> consistency. I imagine lots of online kind of technology companies, people like online streaming services, online news. You know, if you can't get out to the shop to buy a local newspaper or magazine or there's distribution problems with magazines, you'd, you'd read that kind of stuff online and what do you think, Mark? Those would be my best guesses. 
I think it's probably online fashion, particularly loungewear and home delivery alcohol. Am I right? <laughs> fashion is spot on. Fashion is spot on, yeah. And and the others were tech and electronics. I'm looking at my my new Sonos speaker at the moment and and thinking case in point there, home and garden and beauty. So those are the categories that that have had the most reviews in the last 12 months. But I mean, generally speaking, we went from pre-COVID to collecting just over 2 million reviews a month. In the space of two months, that shot to over 3 million reviews a month. So it's it, it, specific industries were, were seeing big growth, but just generally people were doing more online, which meant that that, that we were collecting more reviews almost overnight. Amazing. And just to turn that whole concept on its head for a sec, so you said, obviously, technology, fashion, beauty, etc., as, as to be expected, I think. Yeah. They're getting much, you know, loads more reviews, I'm assuming mostly positive. Are there any industries that have had massively negative reviews? And I'm thinking in my head like airlines that have had to cancel flights and there's been mix-ups on refunds and all that sort of stuff. Is there any particular, in, are there any industries that have had a lot of negative reviews at the same time? Yeah, I, I think the travel industry was obviously hard hit. I think in general, uh, looking back kind of 12 months ago, a lot of businesses experience teething problems, regardless of what industry you're in. And Mark, you, you probably picked up on this from, from some of the companies that you work with, but companies who had customer service teams who were previously office-based, who just had to operate to everyone being remote. So I, I guess this time last year, a lot of companies were, were experiencing in teething problems, regardless of industry, really. Yeah. I think that lasted for quite a while as well. We did a survey towards the end of last year just to kind of get a, a snapshot of, of e-commerce experience. And over a third of consumers had had a terrible experience, like a one-star experience with shopping online, which we we found amazing because, you know, look at that blue ocean of opportunity you've got with with everyone moving online, both brands and and consumers. And and the first thing you really need to do is, is get your house in order, right? And And that didn't seem to be necessarily happening as much as it as it should be. And we looked into that in, in even more detail. And it was again the the areas where you you really think that brands would want to fix. So often it was it was delivery and, and returns where where kind of things fell over. Interesting. It, it, it's amazing actually that so many of the basics haven't changed. Um, we had Chris from an agency called OnState, who one of our main partners at my business. They do the website, we do the marketing stuff. Chris came on the podcast last summer and very clearly said, and, and I even heard him on a call earlier this week saying exactly the same thing to one of our mutual clients, use your website as a customer. Is it is it clear and obvious? Does it do what it is supposed to and get customer feedback? And what you've just said, Mark, about getting your house in order. We've even had a client recently who obviously won't mention their name because I'm about to say something quite negative, but they own their own web agency and they were super proud of the look and feel of this new website they'd launched, et cetera. And we basically, they, they said, but why have our leads dried up? And we sort of said, you didn't really involve us in the project at all. We were kicking and screaming saying, we need to be involved in the UX. We've got loads of learnings from 18 months, 24 months of working on this site. And your USP is you turn around something in 24 hours that should take six months. And that's not said on the new website at all. So you've lost your edge. So no wonder nobody's inquiring from you. So we need to fix that. And then it was a, why didn't you say this at the time? And the whole kind of conversation starts. But I think... As you say, Mark, it's, it's quite striking that in the e-commerce space, there's been so many opportunities, yet people just haven't done the basics and therefore hadn't, haven't ridden that wave as much as perhaps they could. Yeah, and it's, 
it's frustrating because you've, you've still got some e-commerce brands, and this is not as common as it was, but let, let, going back a couple of months that still had six to seven to 10-day delivery timescales on, yeah. on their website. And I was, I was like, who who's going to buy into that? <laughs> like, We're all Amazon kind of focused now where we expect you know next day, same day delivery. And if you, you, you've got to get your house in order, if, otherwise you're not going to take advantage of, of the boom in e-commerce, which has happened in the last 12 months. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And to give you the sales microphone for a minute, Mark, because I'm a massive advocate of Bright Pearl. Um, you know, what, what can Bright Pearl do to help do two things? One, minimize those negative reviews that are then going to end up on platforms like Trustpilot. And number two, what can you do to avoid the problem in the first place in terms of bad delivery, bad customer experience, etc.? Yeah, well, I think Trustpilot is incredible for the because the reviews you get is is just basic mark you know market research from your customer base so the first step is to go and analyze where you're getting negative reviews and where in a customer journey that's coming from right and we we did we did actual study with with trustpilot a, a year or two back that found that 77% of reviews were a result of just these typical operational failures so delivery returns and and those are all problems that continue to grow as you scale that's massive, is it? Seventy percent were delivery or customer service related. Yeah. It's hard yeah. enough getting a sale on a website, isn't it? I kind of undersold that slightly, but yes, it. it, <laughs> and it but it, but it is. It's it's massive because it, it all. It, you know, you've done the work of getting them converted, but they're probably not coming back if you if you you know you've closed the deal and they don't have a great experience in that last mile, then they're probably not coming back to buy from you again. So that, and, and that's the issue, like as you, as you grow, there's more, you introduce more complexity as you, as you start, begin to, to grow and sell across channels, as, as you, you know, your, your listeners will know. What Brightpool does is, is in a real kind of quick, dirty nutshell, is, is that we sync all of your sales channels together. We add a complete visibility across all your, your sales channels as well. So as well as sort of streamlining and automating all of your, your e-commerce processes. So essentially, you're able to get items out the door faster, more efficiently, and, and in a way that your, your customers want and be able to have that visibility over the customer journey that you, you may not have had before. And then you add into that the fact that we've got tools like warehouse management, demand planning, and automation. And, and, and that that's, that's kind of what Brightpool does to help um, with this process, and, and particularly what retailers are going through at the moment, which is dealing with a huge amount of orders that they've they've never really had to deal with before. In many cases, definitely. And I think one thing you mentioned early on in that in that response was the repeat order. You know, the second order from the same customer. Just to cover on that for a sec, anyone who's listened to this podcast for a while will know how my job is to get new orders in. That's what my company does. We get your new orders in and it's really expensive and it's really complicated and it takes forever. So if the operational side then lets you down, that's the first point where all the hard work's been done and the easy bit has gone wrong. The, the bit that should be an automated process. But then the bit that the, the next domino that falls afterwards is they don't just organically come back and order from you. If you think about it this way for a second, if, uh, if a new customer costs you 20 or 50 or 100 or extreme ex- example, one of our clients really expensive items, but it can cost anything up to 1,000, 2,000 pounds, um, which equates to pretty much the same in dollars per new customer. So if you spend, let's call it 2,000 pounds, $2,000 to get a new customer in, if they organically come back and make a second order, it's now only cost you 1,000 per order. If they make five orders from you, it's now only cost 400 pounds or dollars 
per order. So you see the equation and why lifetime value is so important. And if you get the customer service bit right, you get the product out quickly, the communication's good, et cetera. A, they might just come back and buy from you without any activity from your side at all. And B, you can also send them a few emails, which costs, I think one, I think the average is like one P to reach two or 300 people per email sort of thing. But you need to have them on your database in the first place. They have to have bought from you already to be a really strong contender for that. So I think, yeah, just, just, just a flag. I think repeat orders are so important. So if you let a customer down on that first sale, it doesn't just cost you there and then. It's not just the odd refund, return, discount, refund the delivery cost because it was so slow. It can actually come back to bite you really, really far down the line when actually that same customer could have bought 10, 20, 50 times from you since that order if you got that right in the first place. Bringing this same theme then across to Trustpilot, Tom, bad reviews, Mark's spoken about analyzing them. Do you want to cover a bit more on that as well from Trustpilot's side? And also, is there anything else you can do with bad reviews? Like, a bad review is not the end of things, is it? Absolutely not. No, no. And, and that was what I was going to start with, really, to be honest with you. One of, one, of, one of the things that I spend a lot of time doing, or one of the things I do very early on when businesses first join Trustpilot is to try and explain to them exactly that, that a bad review doesn't need to be a bad thing. We have uh, a bit of an internal saying, I guess, which is that the worst review you get is one that you don't see. Because if you buy something and have a bad experience and then don't have somewhere to feed that back to the company, then, then you as a business, you, you don't know about that bad experience. And actually going back to what you were saying about the lifetime value of a customer, that person won't come back. You won't know where the issue has, has lied. And that person is probably going to tell two or three of their friends about that bad experience with you. So actually having a bad review on Trustpilot is is not a bad thing because you've captured that bad experience. It gives you a platform to, to, to turn that bad review or that bad experience into a positive one. And it gives you a platform to show other people, people who might be visiting your Trustpilot profile or doing some research before buying, that you don't get things right all the time. But when you don't, you do try and make it better. So I guess, yeah, the, 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 the key takeaway really is that a bad review isn't a bad thing. And it gives you an opportunity to, to turn that experience around. You learn a lot more from your defeats than you do from your victories. So five-star reviews are great and they probably will, will help add validation. But as, as a brand, you can really learn from what's not going right to, to help improve your overall customer experience. Absolutely. Definitely. Definitely. I think to flip it on its head, though, there is a marketing element to this, isn't there? I mean, I completely agree with everything in terms of learnings and obviously on Trustpilot, you can write a response if you've got a, yeah. the, the right account set up, et cetera. You can write a response so somebody can say, these guys were absolutely terrible. And you can say, well, actually, we delivered it a day early, but the yeah. delivery itself, we did say it was going to be three days instead of four but five was our limit. You know, it was all done within time. So you can respond. So if anybody was to read that review, they could go, oh, well, the guys did actually sort this out here. You know, the customer's being a bit, a bit harsh, which is always going to happen. Yeah. But obviously it does lower your star rating, doesn't it? So I think there is, there has to be a balance in this, doesn't there, of actually, if we've got a low star rating and we're disappointing everybody, then there's a deeper problem in the business. Because you don't, bad, I hear what you're saying about bad reviews. And I think if it was all positive, you wouldn't really learn. Everybody needs critical feedback. But yeah, that star rating is effective, isn't it? And that is a marketing thing for new customers of like, well, these guys have got bad reviews. I'm not buying from them or I'm going to have a quick, yeah. cl click on that and have a quick read. I think there's a bit of a misconception, right? I think um, a lot of businesses who don't actively collect reviews, they think that people, their customers are only going to leave a review if they've had a bad experience. Yeah. And actually, even last year, 2020, a challenging time as we've covered, 71% of reviews on Trustpilot last year were five star. So we've kind of touched on bad reviews there. 
but actually not that many reviews that people post are negative in the grand scheme of things. And people are very happy to share their positive experiences. And that's where, as you said, Trustpilot can help businesses showcase their good reputation is by collecting those positive reviews and enabling you to, rather than you communicating how good your shipping is or how good your customer service is, isn't it much more impactful when me as a consumer, one of my peers is telling me that? Yeah, definitely. And I think we've definitely had lots of those conversations with clients where we're doing an SEO project and we're like, oh, if we've got some good reviews, there's a lot we could do with that content-wise on the website for SEO to prove to Google that we're a good company, customers like us, etc. Can we run a review platform? And the client goes, oh, everyone's just going to moan about us because that's all we get on the email inbox. And we sort of say, yeah, but that's because the clients and customers, the only microphone they have right now is customer service when it goes wrong. Let's give them a microphone for leaving a review when it goes right and we'll see what happens. And so often we we always agree with the uh, the client that, okay, let's launch Trustpilot, but we won't put it on the website first or, or whatever review platform we use. We we are agnostic, I'm afraid. But whatever, whatever review platform we use, we, we'll launch it, but we won't publicly put it on the website yet. Let's just in, incur some reviews. And if it all goes wrong, we can just sort of park it at the side. And 99.9% of the time, it's always been a massive success. We've always found that actually nine out of 10 reviews are five or four star. That's really good. And the client's like, put it on the website. This is fantastic. <laughs> and so it's like, it, do, it definitely does work. Yeah. It does work for sure. So continuing this theme then, we'll come to you first, Mark. What can you do to strengthen the customer journey, both pre-order and post-order? So I think in terms of, in terms of pre-order, it comes down to having a great user experience, great user journey on the website often. I think that's still really important. To, to customers. Being able to have a, a service promise that is on the level with the major brands like, like Amazon. So just as an example of that, one of our customers, Fairfax and, and Favor, they, they sell luxury handbags. Their big ability to convert over the last year was the fact that they were able to keep their service promise. We will get your order out the door and to you next day. So they had that they kept their next day delivery promise intact. And that was during the the height of the pandemic when a lot of their competitors either went dark or started switching their timescales because they didn't have the ability to, to deliver on that service promise. Just being able to say, we can still deliver your handbag the next day was enough in, in many in, in many circumstances to convince customers to buy. So I think being able to understand, again, what your customers want and being able to represent that on, on your website in a clear way and a, and a truthful way is, is, is really important. When it comes to, I guess, a more sort of operational thing, I'm going to go back to delivery again. I think a lot of brands a lot, and a lot, a, a lot of companies still, as they scale, they're, they're spending a lot of time on, on manually, still now manually spending all their time in certain orders into spreadsheets, which is a huge waste of time and, and invariably leads to, to errors, right? Especially, again, as you're dealing with orders across multiple channels. And I think that's an easy fix, right, for, for brands at, at this point. It's a, it's a huge area. Delivery is so important. And it's it, it seems that brands are still managing, or in many cases, still managing this process manually where they can actually automate order management they can automate shipping and fulfillment and that will take a lot of the the pain out of that that activity and improve your time to ship like massively so i think i think that's an area of a huge improvement i've got one more stat to to throw at you but in terms of e-commerce brands they spend upwards of uh, 20 to 40 hours a week just 
manually dealing with orders via spreadsheets through to, to wow. picking and packing. And like that that can be per employee as well. So it's it's that's huge, right? Like that's that's such an, a a waste of time <laughs> when you you really you could automate that and just return to growth and innovation. And it would probably cost less than those staff members anyway in terms of just P and L on your on your profit and loss sheet. Yeah, and and also like if you're if you are doing those tedious tasks, let's be honest, like every day, errors are going to creep in, and it's the cost of those errors which really are going to hit you at the end of the day. Yeah, definitely. I mentioned to you guys earlier before we hit record that uh, one of our guests has sent me a whole load of uh, kit to have basically have my own small terrapin or turtle in the office. And then when I asked, was this you? It's got no name on it apart from mine. They said, oh, sorry, we didn't mean to send you that. But I might actually buy a terrapin now. But if that had been the, the e-commerce store themselves making that error, it's so costly. I've got a whole load of stock here that I haven't paid for isn't mine, etc. So I think certainly they, those operational errors are, um, are really key. And we use the phrase a lot here when we're talking about our own business and our own growth, etc. We talk a lot about scaling problems and scaling good processes. And I think if you start to build the business thinking like, oh, we can sort all this out later, it's a lot harder to change a process when 50 people are following it than when one person who's still running the business in their bedroom, changing that process can take you know, a matter of hours. Whereas getting 50 staff members to completely change their remit there's going to be HR issues, operational issues, a massive costs. There's now going to be 50 chefs all saying the system needs to do this and this and this. If you just set it to work on a platform from the word go, A, those 50 people might not be needed at all or might not be needed in the same capacity. B, again, you're scaling a good process rather than a problem, which I think is really important here. Same sort of question to you then, Tom, like from Trustpilot's side of things, what are some things people can do pre-initial order and post-initial order as well? Well, I think the key thing is is going back to what I said before. Really, is is just asking the question, just requesting feedback. If you're a business and you're sending out a review invite after every purchase, and and you get, let's say, a ten percent response rate to those review requests, that's a good size, a good sample of your customers that you're getting feedback from. So I think that's the the the, the kind of key thing that the, the businesses should do is is ask their customers for feedback. We we then offer tools. We've got a, a, a tool called Review Insights sites which enables businesses to look at the sentiment within the verbatim reviews themselves so it will give you a sentiment score almost like an nps score for key topics such as delivery such as customer service website returns policy and so on so for those businesses they're able to see okay our delivery is great our customer service is really good but people are having problem with the website or people are having problems with the return policy and that's what it is that delivering negative sentiment within these reviews so that tool can help businesses find problems before before they're often even aware of them or before they're before they're a problem i guess it's it's, it's when it's something that's, that's coming up in those reviews it's often before it becomes a crisis yeah definitely definitely i i've always wondered i don't know if there's any stats in this but or any stats you're that trust pilot willing to share but i've always wondered how many people go on a website and think i've never heard of these guys products look kind of cool thinking of buying let's have a look at reviews and when they land on Trustpilot, they actually just click straight onto the one or two star ones to go, okay, 
are these genuinely bad kind of experiences or are these people that have been sent an email from Trustpilot? Are there any stats on how many people do that at all? Or is that a common thing or is it just me? Well, yeah, I mean, so 89% of people read reviews before making a purchase. And most people that I speak to do exactly what you do, which is you'll go on a company's Trustpilot profile, you'll have a look at the overall score, you'll then probably have a look through some of the positive reviews, you'll then look at some of the, the ones and two stars, and then you'll make an informed decision from there. I think that's quite quite typical quite typical behavior mark i don't know if you do, do you do that as well if you're buying something online yeah and I'll, I'll tell you what i do um and, and also probably leads back to something all brands should do to or make sure they do to, to help with the pre-sale but I'll, I'll go on a website and if it doesn't have the kind of a, a trust pilot rating if it doesn't have a rating at all I'll, I'll start immediately distrusting it yeah i think there's that that validation like you go onto a website because there's a, the fact that e-commerce has boomed means there's a lot of websites that have been set up. You can buy, you you can buy everything from anywhere now. So you, I think as consumers, we we're a little bit distrustful. We we want we want something that easily says to us this website can be trusted. And for me, whether it's four stars or four point two or five, having that banner across the top of a website that says Trustpilot certified. 4.2. I, I'll just look at that. I won't necessarily even click on the ratings. I, I will kind of just go, okay, I can trust this website. That's a conversation I have with companies a lot is uh, having I've had this probably three or four times in the last week or two where, where a company's rated a 4.1, right? And they've got an overall star rating of four stars and they're rated as great. And they're turning to me and saying, oh, well, we don't quite want to scream and shout about this yet because we want to be four and a half and we want to be rated as excellent. And I kind of turn to them and say, well, it's better than having nothing on your website. And what happens if you don't show anything is people are then going to look on Google. They're going to Google company name plus reviews and then they're going to end up on your Trustpilot profile anyway. And actually, would it not be better to kind of keep them on your website and showcase those reviews? Okay, it's not quite where you want it to be yet and you're, you're improving all the time. But is it not better to just show it proudly on the website and keep almost keep people there and not force them to then do an external search and, and, and leave your website effectively. We definitely see an SEO and a good tip for everybody who's listening is set up Google Search Console if you haven't already. It might take a couple of days to populate if you're completely new to it. Loads of guides online as to how to set it up, etc. But in Google Search Console, you can look at what are called search queries to see what people have typed in to find your business. And whether you're a tiny little brand new store or you're a massive global multinational corporation, almost all the time, I've rarely seen anything else, is that the brand name is the first most popular search term because that's you. Anyone who searches that, you're number one and Google appreciates that you are that brand. And number two, so often is the word reviews. Even when people have Trustpilot or I'm being careful not to mention any of the other ones, uh, but any of the other review platforms. Um even if you've got one of those on the site, so often people go to Google and they type in the brand name space reviews and have a look for some review platforms. And so last question to you on this, Tom, because I think this is a really interesting one we get a lot as well is people obviously ask us what review platform to go with. And we sort of give them a few options. And, you know, this one's got great technology, but it's a bit more expensive. This one's a lot cheaper, but doesn't have as good technology. And you want to stick with one for life if you can. Moving can be a faff or have a chat with the platform about whether what moving looks like. But a lot of them will say, but what happens if people go on one of the other platforms and give us negative reviews anyway, and we're not actually set up there, we're only going to pay one review platform. So there might be like five review platforms that come up on Google for them, all with like zero star. And then there'll be that one golden one at the top that they do pay for that's got five star, thousands of reviews, etc. 
Is that a problem? Is that something you think brands should work on and try and mitigate that issue? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's, it's a good question. I, I guess you can kind of split review platforms into two. There's closed review platforms where the, the, the business itself decides who they want to invite and who can leave feedback. And you you wouldn't be able to leave a review unless that company is inviting you. Yeah, unless you've bought a product normally. Exactly. Yeah. Or you have something like Trustpilot, which is what we refer to as an open review platform, which is where there's no paywall in place, right? So companies can collect reviews on Trustpilot for free. If you've had an experience, let's say in store with a company, or you bought something from a company who doesn't actively collect reviews on Trustpilot, they don't invite you to leave reviews. You can still go onto Trustpilot and, and, and leave a review about your experience. So so that's kind of one differentiation to, to, to make, I guess. But yeah, I, I think there's value in, in collecting reviews regardless of which platform you use, to be honest with you. Some businesses have different needs. Your bricks and mortar store, they will need to focus on collecting reviews on Google as well as on a platform like Trustpilot. So I'm not going to come on uh, the podcast and, and uh, kind of um, try and talk people out of using other review platforms. I think, I think there's, there's definitely space for, for, for different types of platform out there. Yeah, definitely. And what, what we often find, certainly in e-commerce, is if somebody's got you know, a few stores or one store or lots of stores, as long as there's stores there, we normally do sort of local store-based reviews on Google Maps, as you mentioned, yep. and then have a service either service or product level review platform on the website. And the way you choose between service level and products normally for e-commerce is if your products change really, really quickly, we'd always recommend service. Because if you leave loads of product reviews and the products disappear, those reviews are they're still on the review platform, but they're not on your website anymore. And all your products that are currently in stock that won't be there in a few months' time, all of them look like nobody's ever reviewed them, which as, we, as we've all alluded to already, you can give a bad story from reviews as well as a good story. But certainly if your products are going to be around, you know, not going to change for many years, then I think product reviews are great. And then also there's technology in the platforms now to allow people, customers to upload pictures of the product. So Amazon sort of led the way in this, I think, alongside Trustpilot and a few others, where you're sort of looking at a blind to put over your window in your bedroom. And there's loads of people with that blind showing, this is what it's like when it's open. And this is how dark the room is when it's shut. You know, it really is a blackout blind sort of thing. And yeah, so I think, those kind of things are really beneficial as well. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's all about user-generated content. I think last year people people trust other people less. People trust businesses less. They trust brands less. We did a Canvas a report with a company called Canvas Eight. Eleven percent fewer customers trust the brands they buy from. So when there's a decline in trust in brands, people look to peer-generated content like reviews, like you've touched on there, photo product reviews, and that's where people place their faith now. So yeah, I think. Product reviews are, are, are great, as you said, for some businesses and service reviews are, are really good as well. They, they enable you to, to capture that feedback about the, the whole end-to-end -end experience rather than it just being about that specific product. So I think both, both are important for e-commerce businesses, definitely. Cool. Well, look, there's loads of great insights there. I hope this has been useful to everybody. Just before we say goodbye and close, Mark, tell us about Lightning 50, this competition. Like, What's involved? Why should people be interested? In, and how do, they, uh, how do they go and enter? Well, look, the last year, year and a half has been a bit of a tough one for everyone. I think online deliveries has unfortunately been one of our, our rare highlights of, the, of our stay-at-home life. So we looked at it and said, look, we, we think it's time to, to actually celebrate our, our nation's fastest e-commerce growers, the ones that have worked so hard over the past 12 months and, and have had so much success, as, as we've talked about. 
And we felt, it, you know, it's, it's actually, it's their chance to be recognized for that success that they've had. So we've come up with this mission to, to go ahead and, and find, identify and recognize the 50 top e-commerce brands, UK e-commerce brands that have had fantastic success over the, over the past year. I think for brands, for merchants, it's, it's a wonderful opportunity for them to get recognized for their efforts, for their brand, for their, their employees as well that have worked so hard. So we're asking them to, to enter. It's completely free to enter at brightpearl.com slash lightning50. Entries close on the 16th of July and it's very simple to enter. It takes a couple of minutes. We're just looking at basic details like your revenue growth over the past year. So it's really simple to enter and, and also a, a nice opportunity to, to be recognized for, for the success that you've had. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Mark. Really appreciate you sharing that. And I think certainly, as Mark says, it's, it's not just for the giant corporates. I think if you're listening to this and you've got an e-commerce store, there's no harm in entering at all. None of the data is going to be shared given the laws these days. Absolutely fine to enter. And I think I'd highly recommend it. I think getting on a list like that and having that on your website to say, you know, we were shortlisted as one of the best growing stores, etc. I think works as a really good piece of marketing material as well. So plenty of opportunities like that. It massively does. And, and as you said, to, to your point, it's not just about recognizing the big brands. This is a purely on, on growth over the past year. And we'll, we'll be breaking it out. So we'll have an overall winner, but we'll also have winners by sector. So if you're you know, a fast growing fashion brand, you've had wonderful success over the last year, get your name in the hat and you might win. And that will be a great piece of market material, as you've said, Nick. Cool, cool. Well, look, thank you both so much for joining us today. I think, it's, as I say, loads of great insights and great to have in the show. So thank you so much for joining in. That's great. Thank you for having us. Excellent. And for anybody else listening, we're starting a very, very exciting new series next week. As at the time of recording this, I have no guests booked yet, but we have loads in the pipeline. So I can't mention any names yet, but we're going to be talking about how to build a killer Shopify store. So we're going to be going through some of the UX, some of the conversion points, and then also how to drive traffic at the store. And um, we've covered the traffic side of things a lot in the past. But something that's come out recently is a lot of our clients at Parker and also at Spec have been saying, how do we just convert that other 99% or 98% of people who don't buy? So we're going to do a whole series on that. So it's going to be at least sort of three or four parts, possibly longer, depending on how popular it is. So make sure you tune in again next Friday. Check out the Facebook group if you haven't already. Hit the subscribe button, leave us a review, and I hope you're staying safe this time. And thanks again for tuning in to today's show. Sign up for free for the Shopify-approved marketing course at 1000salesandbeyond.com and get our show notes at justaskparker.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening to the Winning with Shopify podcast. See you next time.